Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 15. I mentioned in our last episode that the farewell discourse runs from chapter 14 through 16. Some scholars will add in chapter 17, while others will deal with that separately. However you slice it, John 15 is smack in the middle of it. This is part of the discourse whereby Jesus prepared his disciples for his eventual departure from this world. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Now, it will be helpful to know that in the time of Jesus, there was a great golden vine hung over the entrance to the temple. And that is almost certainly the intended imagery behind this teaching. Some scholars even suggest that it may well be that this part of the farewell discourse was given on the road, as it were, as Jesus and the disciples began their walk toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe they passed by this golden vine and And Jesus pointed at it while he began to talk. Obviously, we can't know that for sure because John doesn't say that, but it may well be. Certainly, the figure of the vine was very important in Judaism. It was very important in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was frequently described under the figure of a vine. In Isaiah 5, for example, we read about how God planted Israel like a vine. He tended it. He guarded it. He provided for it, but it did not produce what he expected it or what it should have produced. Isaiah 5 2 says he expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So when Jesus says, I am the vine, he is saying, I am Israel and I will do what Israel never did. I will give God the crop that he is due. And then he goes on to talk about how that will happen. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, so the first thing we learn is that there will be some people who have a nominal connection to Jesus who will at some point be removed. Well, again, That sounds like what Jesus said in Matthew 13. In that chapter, he talks about angels who at the end of the age will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Then the righteous will shine in the kingdom of their father forever. So that is part of how God will get the crop that he wants in the end, by weeding. That's good to know. But also by pruning. If there are true branches that are not producing as they should, he will prune them. That is, he will discipline them. He will will cut them a little bit, not to kill them, but to prepare them for greater fruitfulness. That, too, is part of how God will get the crop that he is due. Verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
for apart from me, you can do nothing. So the secret to fruitfulness is abiding in Jesus. Now, there's a bit of a play on words in verse 3. The Greek word translated clean sounds like the Greek word translated prune and is, in fact, related. So the sense is that Jesus prunes his disciples by his word. If you allow yourself to be cut and shaped and cleansed by the word, then you abide and bear fruit. If you resist or reject the word, then you are cut off. He says that in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So, abiding is abiding in the word and keeping the commandments. And this leads to joy and fruitfulness. And it shows that we love Jesus just as his obedience and fruitfulness showed his love for the Father. Now, there's a promise here that needs a context before it can be claimed. Jesus says that if we abide in him and and his words, we are going to be powerful in prayer. Colin Cruz says here, such promises are conditional upon prayer being in his name, i.e. for his sake, and in line with his teaching, closed quote. I think that is helpful to remember. Jesus doesn't give us power in prayer so that we will never have to suffer. He gives us power in prayer so that we can do things for his sake, in line with his teaching, and in order that the Father might be glorified in the Son. This is a promise for a purpose and with a context. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This, this is a very important paragraph. Notice first, and, and again, that the command to love is focused primarily here on the family of believers. The command is to love one another, the circle of friends who are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is not a command to love all people everywhere, although that is a, a good thing to do. Nevertheless, it is important to notice what Jesus actually says. In our day and age, we are conditioned against hearing anything that emphasizes the importance of the church. Loving people generally, we hear that. Calls to social action, we hear that. But calls to love and prioritize the church, we do not hear that unless you hit us over the head with that. And this text comes pretty close to doing that. This is Jesus 
prioritizing love for one another, love for the circle of the called and committed. These things I command you, that you love one another. And you're going to need that love. You're going to need that circle and that circle of friendship. And he tells you why in the next verse. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The more the culture turns against us, the more we need to turn towards one another. We will need each other in the coming years in ways we haven't needed each other in this culture for centuries. Now is the time to rediscover the significance and centrality of the church. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The world has received its word and invitation. Jesus has come. He has operated publicly. His life, teaching, death, and resurrection were recorded faithfully. It is all there. And therefore, now more than ever, they are without excuse, Jesus says. Now, this paragraph also ought to remind us that any attempt to please the world is a fool's errand. Some churches attempt to soften out some of the pointy bits of our gospel presentation so that they can get people to Jesus. But that process, that methodology, overlooks the central fact that Jesus himself is the essential offense of the gospel. Christ on the cross says that God is holy, people are sinners, and that's not going to work in eternity. And that is what offends people about Christianity. It isn't the window dressing, it is the heart and substance of our message. The world hates faithful Christians, not because they dress funny or listen to odd music or fail to make proper use of the smoke machine. No, the world hates Christians because we preach Christ crucified. We preach Jesus, and they don't like what Jesus says about God, about us, and about how God saves us through the person and work of Christ. That's the problem, and it isn't going anywhere. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. The job of the church is not to make believers. That is the job of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus will send and who proceeds from the Father. He will convict and awaken and strengthen and enable men and women, boys and girls, to believe. Our job is just to speak about what we have seen and heard. We're not responsible for the outcome. 
We pray. We preach. We love one another. We endure hostility. We persevere. We forgive. We show mercy. We love those who hate us, and we bless those who curse us. And the Spirit takes it from there. That's how the church will be gathered. That's how the world will be divided. And that's how God will be glorified in the Son. We know that because this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.